This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi, this is Rebecca Buchanan, host of Doom Books Network, New Books and Popular Culture. And today I'm here with Anne McClellan, who is the author of Sherlock's World, Fan Fiction and the Reimagining of BBC Sherlock. And thanks for being with me today. Thank you so much for inviting me, Rebecca. So I'm hoping you can start by just sort of telling us how you got interested in writing about Sherlock, BBC Sherlock, and, and their fan fiction around it. Sure. So I have been a Sherlock Holmes fan since I was a teenager. Um, and I came at him um, through media before any of the books or the reading. So my mother would have me watching Jeremy Brett's um, Sherlock Holmes series on PBS when I was a teenager. So I had a little bit of an interest. And then he came back kind of when I was in graduate school. I had wonderful professors at the University of Cincinnati who were really interested in using the Sherlock Holmes stories to teach critical theory and different kind of metaphors and theories about reading. And I actually originally wanted to write my dissertation on not just Sherlock Holmes, but on the uses of disguise in um, Victorian and modern British literature. Didn't happen, you know, years go by, but I start teaching full time. And one of the first things I did was I started using Sherlock Holmes and I was interested in mystery stories. So I was working on this for a long time. I had a colleague here who kept saying like, you know, you should like do a public talk on this. And I was like, whatever. And then um, this friend uh, who was my department chair at the time in 2010 said, hey, I heard this really interesting interview on NPR this week that they're doing this new modern day Sherlock Holmes TV show that was going to be on PBS this week. And I thought you might be interested. And I was like, whatever. So so I watched the pilot of the of BBC Sherlock and I found myself like sitting alone in my house applauding out loud at the end of this TV show because I just thought by Jove they've got it you know like I, I was trying I became this proselytizer for BBC Sherlock for all of my friends try to get everyone to watch the show and somehow being the fangirl that I was, and of course the research that I was, I think I you know I go to the internet to lo- start kind of learning slash stalking, right? All these kind of different worlds of Sherlock, and I stumbled across Live Journal um, fan fiction for the first time. Now I knew about fan fiction because I had a wonderful colleague when I was in graduate school in the '90s who I worked with at the Writing Center who was really into Xena, Warrior Princess fan fiction. So we would talk about fan fiction. And um, so, but this was kind of my first foray into doing research and delving into fan writing. And so I started with Live Journal. Of course, this is like 2011, spring of 2011. This is right when Archive of Our Own is starting to go through kind of beta stages and you had to get you know this massive backlog for permissions to get in there. Um, so I started doing all this research 
and learning about just fan practices. And I went to the um, National Pop Culture Conference that spring, I think, or the following spring for the first time, and just really started immersing myself um, in different ways that fans engage with Sherlock and, and different kinds of texts as well. And then I, I think part of my literary background got me more and more interested in the different ways that fans started kind of reappropriating or recentering and framing all of these fan fictions do through these different kinds of tropes and literary lenses and genres. And so that started giving me a direction of how to get my um, brain around all the different kind of pieces of Sherlock fan fiction. And then, you know, six years of my life go by later and I have this book. (laughs) (laughs) So you start out with talking sort of about how even when Sherlock Holmes started there, even before we get to live journal and what we think of as fan fiction and all of these appropriations, there was appropriation with um, Sherlock Holmes and the text and sort of this fan culture around even the original Sherlock Holmes. So, um, So can you talk a little bit about sort of that and sort of situating us in this sort of Sherlockian experience? Yes, one of the fascinating things I think about this when you when you do um, read all the scholarly books or work on kind of fan studies as a discipline, a lot of it often goes back to the 1960s and 70s, and they talk about fanzines and particularly the, the influence of Star Trek and people kind of writing fan fiction and different kinds of fan practices and turning into conventions and conferences. But when you start looking at kind of the history of other kinds of literary and media franchises in particular, and you go back farther and further, Matthew Freeman is actually another British scholar who's got really wonderful work on the early 20th century. He looks at Frank L. Baum's Wizard of Oz kind of fictional world, and he also looks at Tarzan and the different ways that kind of they've created these media franchises. Sherlock Holmes is, is a fascinating example going back to the 1890s where you actually see a lot of the same kind of fan practices that are happening now happening back then. So as soon as um, Doyle um, starts writing the, sh- the short stories in particular, the novels start coming out in 1887, but it's not really until um, Arthur Conan Doyle starts publishing the short stories in the Strand magazine in 1891 that he really becomes a public phenomenon. So people would line up you know, at the libraries, they'd have to extend their opening hours so people could get copies of their books. And um, Doyle received fan mail. Um, They thought he was Sherlock Holmes. Many people believed he was a real figure. He got picked up in advertising right away as if he was a real historical figure. Um, When Doyle kills him off in 1893, like the British public and really worldwide really lost their mind. They mourned him. There's great apocrypha about people crying in the streets or wearing black armbands and mourning for the death of this fictional character. There are fictional obituaries in the UK and Wales in the United States lamenting the death of this wonderful detective. They said the greatest detective amateur or otherwise ever known. And he's a fictional character. And so people, (laughs) those are kind of immediately, you've got journalists playing into kind of this myth that he's a real person. There's a couple of editors from the Bookman a magazine in the United States in the 1890s who publish an interview with Sherlock Holmes. I mean, there's a couple of them where these journalists say that they go to 221 B Baker street and they interview Sherlock Holmes, the bookman one I love because he's, um, Sherlock Holmes is furious that Arthur Conan Doyle is basically, he says it's a hack that he's, he's not an original creative writer. All he does is 
basically steals stuff about Sherlock Holmes's life and tries to become famous off of his accomplishments and exploits. Um, and then as soon as Doyle um, kills Sherlock Holmes off in 1893, also just the newspapers and magazines are flooded with Sherlock Holmes parody. So everyone's got their version of Sherlock Holmes and they are different kinds of stories. So you see people... Um, treating him like he's a real person, but also writing in the style of Conan Doyle, what we would call like a literary studies pastiche, writing their versions of it, um, publishing articles and newspapers like Titbits where they have Sherlock Holmes and they create him and it writes stories where he's doing new adventures or put him together with modern day events. So you see the same kinds of fan practices that we think are incredibly modern with modern media that actually go all the way back to the 1890s and you see with the Sherlock Holmes character. So it's it's a real fascinating parallel and allows us to have a much more historical understanding of audience engagements with fictional characters, literary texts, and different kinds of media. Um, and I'm excited about there's a lot of really interesting work being done where people are backing up our understanding of fan practices and behaviors. We'll go back to Jane Austen fans, Austenites. Lord Byron had an amazingly kind of rabid fan base um, who loved him kind of as just a public figure and told stories too. Shakespeare um, fan fiction, but his plays, because he ripped them off from other plays. Some people would say the Bible is fan fiction. You know, Greek mythology is fan fiction. You know, all of that. But basically, it's just like Achilles fan fiction. It was really interesting because as I was reading this, um, I'm a big fan of the BBC series. And also, I'm a mystery fan, too. So Sherlock Holmes is one of those entrances to mystery, along with my Nancy Drew. Um, (laughs) But... When I went, when I was in London and I went to Baker Street, I was, I was right, because you have to, even though it's not, right? I was fascinated by all the letters that are still written to Sherlock Holmes. Like they house these letters that were, that are written to Sherlock Holmes that have been written and that people are still writing to this fictional character. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this goes back, actually. So when Doyle um, created um, Sherlock Holmes in 1887, he's actually from Scotland. He was not a, a natural born Londoner. and He was living in the south of England in Portsmouth. And so he creates this bohemian detective. He literally opened a map and thought, well, where would be a cool neighborhood for him to live and kind of plunked down on Baker Street and invented 221B Baker Street. But in reality, the number, the houses on Baker Street in 1887 only numbered up to 100. So it was a completely fictional address. So it wasn't until 1930 when the Westminster um, City Council decided to extend Baker Street that you actually got a 221 Baker Street, which was the home of this boring bank, the Abbey National Bank. And as soon as their postal address became a reality, they were flooded with letters addressed to Sherlock Holmes, so many that they had to have hire a full-time secretary whose job title was the secretary to Mr. Sherlock Holmes in order to respond. And she would actually respond to every letter that came in. Um, and they're great ones. You know, there's people who are really are kind of fans of the stories, basically complimenting Holmes on his deduction. There's people who want to hire him. Children wrote to him. There's a wonderful collection um, by a famous Sherlockian named um, Richard Lancelin Green of some of the best letters that have been archived um, that were sent to the Abbey National. So even in the 90s, they were still receiving 200 to 300 letters per week um, sent to uh, to the bank. Now it's interesting because so this bank building, you know, is down here at 221 Baker Street. And there's a lot of information about this on the internet. And I talk about it a bit in my book. But um, 
1990, a private um, family decided to open the Sherlock Holmes Museum, which is the museum that you went to and I've been to and thousands of people from all over the world have been to. Um, And it was located down the street, I think at 239 Baker Street. And so (laughs) they opened it up and the Westminster City Council said, gosh, this is such a great tourism opportunity for fans. So it's just a shame that it's down at 239 Baker Street and everyone else is down here at 221 in front of this boring bank, you know, taking pictures. So they renumbered the street. So I think it's fascinating. So if you go to Baker Street today and actually look at the addresses no, on the doors, you'll see like, like it, 235, 237, then you've got 221 And so they renumbered the street in order to kind of get the, the fiction of the museum and his actual, you know, quote unquote, so Sort of start and his with this clothing idea and of, artifacts um, to match to the think about world, world building. I just think um, it's a fascinating reshaping so of the real sort of world to, um, to meet a fictional a reality. That and um, where you sort of situate and place us into this Sherlock's world to get into the fan fiction. Sure. So the world building actually came out of, I mean, I was, of course, researching fan fiction. But at the same time, I had a book club with a colleague here where we were researching um, different kinds of digital media and formats and kind of just reading books that were coming out and having somebody to talk about it. And so I was really became intrigued with this, the theoretical kind of framework of world building, which you were seeing really in fantasy literature, um, some research, so um, going all the way back to Tolkien writing sec- about secondary worlds and how fantasy stories need to be present fantasy worlds, imaginary places, you know, like Middle Earth or The Hobbit, need to be presented as if they are complete and absolutely realistic and believable. Um, and then this gets picked up quite a bit in video game design and a lot of criticism and conversation and theory about video game and video gaming and um, the flow that video game players have when they engage with the game and the seamlessness that that happens between the player and the world that they're playing in. And so the more and more I kind of start thinking about like how fans engage with fictional texts within fan fiction, I thought, well, a lot of that is about imagining and identifying what are the markers of that fictional world. And you'll notice when you read a lot of fan fiction, you see these same markers come up over and over and over again. So in BBC Sherlock, you know, they're going to be talking about Sherlock's flat, which has very distinctive artwork. So it has a skull, you know, painting on the wall, this blue skull, and it has this um, bison head skull also on the wall with headphones on it and this, you know, bizarre wallpaper. So you see these kind of things come up over and over again, and then it lends itself to the fictional characters, their mannerisms, the catchphrases that they have. And so the writers kind of immerse you in the world of the TV show, and then they start adding their spins on it. So it was important kind of to think about what world building was, understanding that Doyle actually did this also in like the 19th century versions of that, what defined Sherlock Holmes as such a remarkable character and so distinctive, and then seeing how um, Moffat and Gatiss kind of pick up on that at a 21st century twist, and then how the fans kind of take parts of that and then repackage it and then keep adding these different twists. Like, well, what if this happened? Well, what if this happened? What if this was different? Um, And so sometimes, and I was trying to think through the book too, about there seems to be a progression of extremes also that ends up kind of looping you back around to the original. Because I kept coming, I kind of had this hypothesis in this book about, well, why would 
people who love the TV show are drawn to write, they want more of the TV show. So they start writing their own stories, but then why would you want to change it? You know, so much, if you love the show, why would you want to change it? And so then I started complaining with all the different ways they change it and wondering, was there ever a point where you get so far away from the quote unquote original? Is it still recognizably Sherlock fan fiction? And I kind of end um, the book looking at real person fiction where it looks like, you know, much like we had in 1893 with Sherlock Holmes being a fictional character or a real historical figure, the fans kind of start moving outside of the writing Sherlock fan fiction and say, well, I'm going to write Benedict Cumberbatch fan fiction and Martin Freeman fan fiction. But when you start looking at these fan fantasies or imaginations of like engaging with these actors in real life or being in relationships with them, they were reincorporating all of the tropes of the fictional world of Sherlock. So some of them, you know, you've got fans meeting Martin Freeman and getting in these kind of role-playing situations where they keep basically calling Martin Freeman, John Watson. And so you're like, so there's that kind of flip. Um, they want to, you know, attribute to, you know, mannerisms and catchphrases that you find in the TV show to Benedict Cumberbatch, quote unquote, in real life. And so there ends up kind of being this really fascinating flip where even in some of the fan fiction, you can't tell the difference between fan fiction and reality. So it's kind of this fascinating progression. Uh, um, and we could talk later. I'm interested. I'm interested to talk about like you know what's not in this book that you know as soon as you ever publish a book, you're like I should have done a chapter on this, you know like. Ah. Um, but that's kind of how I was trying to figure out um, the progression that I had there. And how are they sort of thinking about um, that world in this modern mm. space? Mm-hmm. So how do they modernize that? This yeah, yes, this there is, we go. yeah. So I and I've been. You know, writing this book also helps me realize like how much I've been doing and interested in adaptation studies the whole time. And I probably wasn't, you know, for 20 years and wasn't even naming it or thinking about it. We have a general education course here at my campus called Twice Told Tales, which I love, which looks at kind of past and present. Um, It teaches about the relationship between the past and present for our general education. Um, But it looks at, you know, basically I can take you know, Sherlock Holmes from 1890, and I could take Sherlock from 2010 and say, like, let's talk about what this tells us about the past and the present. Um, So I've been very interested in things like this. So, but it was, it took a lot of time and a a lot of digging to understand kind of, there are some slight um, nuances between adaptation and appropriation. And adaptation, you know, if you read a lot of the scholars like Deborah Cartmel, and there's a lot of other people, talk quite a bit about genre adaptation. So when we talk about adaptation, usually we're looking at something like, a Jane Austen novel. That's my second Jane Austen reference today. She must be on my mind. Jane Austen novel and turning that into a movie. Like there are there are different genre rules for fiction that there are in film, and you have to take pay attention to the medium um, and what you know visual and audio will add to and change to uh, telling a story in a way that's very different if you're only relying on, on, on print text. And so a lot of it in an adaptation is kind of taking a particular story or a world in one medium and converting it into another medium. And, and what does that mean about privileging one over the other? What does it tell you about the medium itself and the genre and what it can kind of add or how it changes a story. Um, appropriation is a little more hodgepodge. In many ways, it's a little more postmodern because 
they often kind of take pieces, um, whether it's of a single source text, it could be an entire body of work, it could take different versions, and then kind of combines them together and also makes into something new. And so appropriations can also be, as adaptations can be from text to text or film to film, um, but they can also happen from, you know, text to film as well. And so it becomes this bricolage of all of these kind of nuances and, and it creates something new. So one of the most famous in film studies really of an appropriation, I would say, would be um, the movie Clueless, right? So it's a modernized update, again, Jane Austen, right, <laughs> of, of Jane Austen's Emma, um, and looks at it very differently and takes different kinds of nuances to create a new text. And this is really, um, Sherlock is interesting because they actually are um, change their, uh, their approach to um, adapting and appropriation by season. So when you look at the credits, and I'm probably going to get this wrong in my own book if you, right now as I'm talking about it, if you look at the credits in season one, um, they basically say they're based on the character of Sherlock Holmes. So they're very clearly trying to be appropriative. So they have brand new, even though the first episode, um, Study in Pink, looks a lot like the first Sherlock Holmes story, which is a study in Scarlet. It actually uses, you know, of course, modern day language and situations. And it actually has references to about seven different Sherlock Holmes stories in that one 90 minute episode. The second one, The Blind Banker, is pretty original, uses a few things that you can find in some Sherlock Holmes stories about like codes and code breaking, like the dancing men or other ones like that. And then you have um, The Great Game, which has versions of The Final Problem, which is where Sherlock Holmes meets Moriarty for the first time. But they, every one of those first episodes really is kind of a brand new thing on its own, but they have these illusions, like at least to seven different stories in each one. Now, interesting, they, of course, now they become hugely successful. All this pressure comes on. They come into season two. They change their attribution in the credits. So it was like based on the character of Sherlock Holmes. Then it becomes based on the work of Arthur Conan Doyle. And season two is actually much more adaptive. So it's like, this is a version of this story. This is a version of this story. This is a version of the final problem, um, the Reichenbach fall. So they, so they have kind of very interesting connections and approaches. It's almost like the more famous they got, the more faithful they became. And they were also very careful, which is bizarre. I don't know if they got worried that they were like taking too many liberties, sir. Um, in their interviews, too, they were always very careful to say, oh, no, no, it's not, it's not our success. Arthur Conan Doyle's a real genius here. We're just... You know, basically, then they say we're just changing everything and making it totally new. But no, no, it's really Arthur Conan Doyle, but really it's us. Um, and so, one of the ways, of course, they I think really successfully did that as well is to appropriate it and also go with their world building was how they talk about and use technology. I mean, the use of technology, let alone with just directing, they were very well known for hiring very innovative directors who have um, really unusual approaches to especially how do you show um, internal thought and like Sherlock Holmes deduction to an audience in a audio visual format that you can't do in an exposition format that you would in a Sherlock Holmes story. A lot of Sherlock Holmes stories is about explaining, right? So the end of every story is Holmes explains to you how he solved it. That's boring for television. So they have to show you along the way what he's doing. And so they came up with this really innovative way to show you him going through his deductions. So they put text on screen, particularly this is one of their best, which is actually the last 
episode I think they filmed in season one ended up being the pilot. And I think it's the most innovative visually. So they have text on the screen as Sherlock is examining the, um, the corpse of the, the first woman who has died. I mean, the woman in pink, basically. Um, and you see him going through his different deductions. But of course, we can see that no one else knows what's going on. And you don't know what to think about that. So that was really interesting. And then his connection to technology, particularly with the internet um, and his connections, that they'll put all of that right up on screen. They kind of innovated how you look at mobile texting on screen that you see so many other TV shows now and movies adopting from Sherlock's um, model with that. So that becomes so much part of the world building as well. I think it's a really interesting way that they incorporated technology. It's also a form of adaptation and appropriation. Like it's a it's a way they got around having to explain things that you would in a literary text in order to use technology and um, visual cues in order to get the audience there in the television version. And so you sort of sort of situate us in this world that has been created for BBC, BBC Sherlock. And then you start to look at the ways the fans have um, changed those worlds or adapted those worlds or appropriated them in different ways. And and so you look at different types of fan fiction. So you start with sort of flash. Um, So can you talk a little bit about that? Maybe uh, for those who don't know, we can define Flash uh, or sla- uh, Slash and then um, go into talking about sort of what you were finding and what you sort of saw in that Slash fiction um, of Sherlock. Sure. That uh, ironically, like, of course, I think a lot of times Slash, which is Slash goes to the fo- the forward stroke kind of um, grammatical punctuation mark where you're combining two things together. And people trace this going back to um, early fanzine um, writing about Kirk slash Spock fan fiction that was supposed to indicate to readers that this was a story that was going to have Kirk and Spock from Star Trek in a relationship. Um, oftentimes for most people, they believe it's some kind of romantic relationship. It could be, it could be friendship and platonic, but oftentimes implies a romantic relationship, which can veer all the way to explicitly sexual relationship. This is, and this is the predominance of, of a lot of fan fiction that's out there. There's a lot of reason why a lot of people like fan fiction. It's probably the most well-read genre of fan fiction as well. Um, and this, I will say, that's probably what I jumped right into and discovered as well, which was John and Sherlock um, slash, as they like to call it, actually John Locke, right? The John Locke slash um, relationship combo. So these are stories that really look at the two characters, the male characters um, who are in a, um, a romantic or sexual relationship. This actually was the hardest chapter for me to write because so much public fascination and sometimes kind of um, embarrassment or shame that goes about um, assumptions about fan fiction in popular media or popular culture is about slash fan fiction. So it gets brought up. I mean, especially when I was writing this book, it was brought up on lots of different talk shows, whether in the UK and Graham Norton or the United States, where they would get these actors on who were popular figures in fan fiction, like characters from the Marvel universe or the Sherlock universe. And they would kind of confront these actors with fan art, sexually explicit fan art stories. Um, In one kind of famous situation, um, big media event, an interviewer asked um, Benedict Cumberbatch and Martin Freeman to read fan fiction, sexual 
explicit fan fiction about themselves to an audience. Um, so it's, it's quite controversial kind of in the, in the public sphere. And it's also been very um, interesting for a lot of fan scholars. So there's been quite a bit about like, well, why do fans write slash fiction? Why do heterosexual women predominantly read it and write it? Like what's the motivations behind it? Different kinds of genre um, about that too. So I felt like this was a, a big area in fan studies. And I, I didn't know at the time, like, well, what am I going to say, <laughs> you know, here? Um, and you have to, you know, do a book like this, you have to write to maybe an audience that doesn't know anything about this as well as audience who are experts in that. Um, so I really was interested in looking at um, this kind of hypothesis of it are, is making Sherlock and John in the BBC world, putting them into um, an emotional or sexual relationship, does that violate kind of the world? Or like, is that part of the fictional world that we have of the TV show? Um, is it consistent with the world as it's been created? Or is this some kind of, you know, I kind of talk about like, quote unquote, violating the fictional constructs of the world. And so that was kind of my entry point here. And so w when I started digging, it was really fascinating. So you go, okay, well, let's go back and look at the actual world of the TV show. How are John and Sherlock's characters established and presented to audiences? And right from the first episode, the characters in the show, it is written into the text that everyone thinks that they're in a romantic relationship, that they're attracted to each other. So there are... There's a famous scene in the pilot where John and Sherlock pretty much have just practically met. They've just left um, looking at 221B to moving in together to go to this dinner. And John's trying to just figure out who Sherlock is. And he's kind of like, so, you know, do you have a girlfriend? And Sherlock famously says, you know, not my area. And so you could see kind of John go, oh, right. Oh, do you have a boyfriend then? And kind of Sherlock looks at him. John says, not that there's anything wrong with that, right? And Sherlock, of course, jumps in. I know there's not anything wrong with that. It's like uncomfortable silence, right? So, and it's never exactly clear, like, so, you know, and then Sherlock basically thinks that John's coming on to him and he doesn't want to date him. And he's like, I'm, you know, married to my work in this very famous scene. So very quickly on, like, you know, that Sherlock is this ambiguous character and like, and you're like, is John hitting on him? And like, what's happening there? And then this goes on and on. So Mrs. Hudson, when John comes to look at the, apartment she basically says well there's two bedrooms if you need two bedrooms and john's kind of like why wouldn't we need two bedrooms she's like well you know <laughs> you know basically that your neighbors next door are you know t uh, two men you know homosexual men in a relationship and this is constantly happening all three seasons you know she persists in believing they're in a relationship um irene adler when she comes up in season two persists in believing their relationship so which is also controversial with fans because fans think either they're like see it's canon I want to believe that they're going to be romantically involved in the end. And then other fans, of course, who see this as queer baiting, but they're trying to get a queer audience, but then they turn um, this ambiguousness of their relationship and, and Sherlock's sexuality into a joke that it becomes this punchline in the show. So, so that ambiguity and that perception that they are in an intimate relationship is from the very first episode. So then you're like, oh, so maybe a queer reading of Sherlock is canonical for the BBC world. And so then you start looking at their behaviors and their mannerisms and John being presented as this nurturer and caretaker, which, you know, and very kind of 
you know, conservative ways people could say is like feminine characteristics. Sherlock is vain. Um, he's emotional. He's unpredictable. He gets criticized quite a bit for what seems like these feminine characters in the TV show. And then people kind of play with this. And I look at quite a long um, kind of spectrum of different kinds of fan fiction. So we have fan fiction between, you know, slash fiction between John and Sherlock and these relationships that deal with kind of stereotypically masculine and feminine behaviors and how that gets negotiated. Then I look at um, fan fiction that actually looks at transgender um, characters as well. So there's a, it was, at, especially at this time, it was not a lot. There's some really fascinating ones that looked at um, Sherlock as a trans man who kind of had this upbringing as a woman who didn't like her body or didn't feel like her body fit or want to be perceived as a man. Sometimes they have sexual reassignment surgery. Sometimes um, it's about presentation. And so there's, there's even kind of that level of exploration of the relationship to the body as well as kind of sexual identity and behavior and presentation, which I thought was really interesting as well. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Yeah, no, I found that really interesting too. It made me, because you meant, because some of the adaptations of Sherlock um, have been with switching, like Lucy Liu plays um, Watson, right? So we look at, right. Or um, I, I'm guessing, I'm assuming you've read Brittany Calavero's A Study in Charlotte. They're, they're wonder. I, I mean, I love them. They're su- They're wonderful. Right. But so, so there's these moves. Um, there's been previous moves with this, but not in the way that you sort of, when you sort of talk about this idea of gender swap um, that we don't see it like that. And so can you talk a bit more about how, what you were seeing with the gender swap and the gender identity and the transgender fan fiction mm-hmm. with Sherlock? Yes. So um, that was one of the um, ones that I worked on quite early too. So when, we, and I, I think some of the, the bits that I talked about with the slash fan fiction and about gendered behaviors and sexual interests overlaps with that gender swap chapter um, that you see a lot of characters yeah, playing with these kind of gender presentation and, and um, expectations about masculine behaviors and how we as a Western culture look at men and what we expect to be kind of male characteristics, leadership, assertiveness, aggressiveness, what we think of as kind of feminine characteristics of um, nurturing, passivity, um, being a support character, and how that plays out with Sherlock and John in the show, and then how it plays out with them in the fan fiction. So you see a lot of fans kind of having the characters in their fan fiction talk about conflicts with be having a particular biological sexual identity, but then also having um, behaviors or something that maybe not align with that. And so we have, um, so some fans actually say, well, what if, you know, we went kind of went with that and you actually changed 
the biological sex of John or Sherlock or both John and Sherlock? And then what would that do to the world of the story? And so what's interesting with a lot of it is that you see the exact same catchphrases. We see the same scenes, you know. And we see all those um, same elements, even when you have a female John or a female Sherlock. A lot of times this, the authors, kind of, there's some great bloggers out there, too, that were talking about, like, they wanted characters who were assertive, who were incredibly, like, intellectual geniuses, who could, you know, accomplish all these amazing things in life. And one of them I should talk about um, in the book is basically said, I want to female Sherlock Holmes, but she was like, I don't want a version of Sherlock Holmes. I actually want a Sherlock Holmes who's a woman. And so they play with what would happen if that happens. And so there's a lot of great stories about kind of um, cultural backlash against these characters. Like, well, what would it mean if, if Sherlock Holmes was a woman and walked into a crime scene and talked to the police and other men like that? Like, would they believe her? Would she have the respect? You know, what would happen? Um, there are scenes where, and stories where you've got um, Sherlock, very much a kind of the Sherlock you have in the TV show as a younger person in the team who's a victim of sexual assault and, and, and showing how other male characters may want to basically challenge her femininity. And they say whether or not she's actually a woman because she's too smart or she's too aggressive or she won't do what other women are supposed to do. She loses love interests because she's too smart, you know, and doesn't think the her boyfriend is smarter than her. She gets assaulted um, because she has a group of boys when she's a young girl and a teenager who basically say they want to prove that she's a woman um, because she doesn't behave like one. So this is really kind of, sometimes, you know, strong, scary cultural critiques about the obstacles and the real dangers that a female Sherlock Holmes might actually face in the world. And of course, there's, there's wonderful ones that, that deal with what that might mean for other people to see that. Um, and then, you know, you get into like, well, then what's the relationship? You know, I always think it's a misnomer. We always call it gender swap fan fiction, where gender are these kind of culturally constructed learned behaviors that we have that we adopt and are reinforced from everything from speech patterns to you know clothing. But then there's biological sex, which we think is kind of our, our DNA and our genitals and how they're you know, we're born. But of course, you know, you do any research on on gender or even in um, in the studies in the natural sciences, you find like, well, you know, there's some questions even on whether biological sex is the determinant or your DNA or your chromosomes. How do you determine what somebody's sex is, let alone their their gender? So the transgender um, fan fiction really starts adding like layer and layer and layer upon this, so that you may have, uh, um you know, born female Sherlock Holmes who transitions to being a male character. And that just raised so many questions to me. It's like, okay, so why as, you know, and I tried to stay away from a lot of motivation. So what is it that would make you take a male character out of a TV show, convert that male character to a female character, and then say that female character wants to be, a, you know, sees herself, himself as a man and go through that process. And so as a reader and kind of looking at it through gender theory lenses, it, it complicates and questions a lot of assumptions that we have about gender identity and, and biological sex in ways that I think further complicate turning Sherlock and John from, you know, male characters into female characters, which is also fascinating. Some of my favorite right. stories. 
No, it's really right. So it's really fascinating to sort of think about those ideas of um, gender and sexuality, as well as thinking about how we sort of approach those relationships. And, and so you you talk about that, and we can come back to that a little when you um, in that sort of final chapter where you look at sort of um, the characters in real life, um, but you also. Uh, talk about the world and how people sort of adapt, create new worlds and sort of create alternate, alternate universe fan fiction. Right. And it's interesting too, to think about how Sherlock is uh, different than many of the other fan fiction where um, Lord of the Rings, you mentioned game of Thrones, Lord of the Rings, Harry Potter, where they're in these different worlds, right. These, these fictionalized worlds where Sherlock is not. And so can you talk a bit about that alternate universe fan fiction and, and how that sort of plays out with, uh, BBC Sherlock. Yeah. And I, I learned from about, you know, you learn a lot about yourself when you delve this deeply into um, this kind of project, like that alternate universe apparently is my absolute favorite genre of fan fiction. It's particularly, and I would not have known this sports alternate universe fan fiction. So I wanted to include so many sports AUs in this book. I could probably just write an entire book on that. So alternate universe fan fiction, if any of the listeners don't know, is basically it takes the fictional characters and you know, from the original, you know, TV show, we would say in our case, who are in modern day London, you know, they're in this flat, Sherlock is a detective, you know, John's a retired army doctor, and you have all these other pieces, and they change major elements of this, it could change everybody's profession. So one of the most famous Sherlock fan fictions is um, performance in a leading role, um, which by this art um, author named Mad Laurie, which is a wonderful long story, which basically takes John and Sherlock modern day. They're still British, but moves them to LA and they make them famous Hollywood actors who end up kind of in a Ang Lee broke back mountain kind of movie. And then of course have to like keep their, they fall in love and they start this sexual relationship and they have to keep it silent from Hollywood because they're going to get blacklisted. This is an amazing um, story. Interestingly, as a side point, I, I should go back and look at this because one of the things in the story is that Sherlock later on, because he's known for playing intellectual movie characters, gets cast in a movie to play Nikola Tesla. This is how that movie ends. And I thought, oh, now with Benedict Cumberbatch in the current or you know, playing Thomas Edison, I thought somebody has to have gone back and written a sequel to performance in a leading role. So this modern day, they're still Sherlock and John. They still have their characteristics, but now they're movie actors. They can move them into other fictional worlds. So there's a lot of um, AU fanfic that takes Sherlock and John and puts them into Hogwarts. Like, what if they were buddies with Harry Potter? Um, puts them into other worlds. You know, I ended up getting into um, Inception fan fiction after Sherlock. And so there's crossovers between inception fan fiction and um sherlock so you've got sherlock and john kind of in the inception world so you have these crossovers with different fictional worlds um au's as well and does and then there's a lot where you know they could be out in space and you know there's a lot of other fun i didn't get to write anything about tentacle fan fiction which is a whole kind of subgenre. um but apparently i really love sports au's a lot of the ones i talk about one is an alternate universe where Sherlock ends up being cloned. Mycroft clones him and they have a clone baby Sherlock that he and John end up raising together. It's a wonderful story called Nature and Nurture. There's a really famous um, baseball AU where Sherlock and John are both um, professional American baseball players. Um, that's the bang and the clatter. So Sherlock is British, but John is American and they end up on the same team 
And of course, they're underdogs, and they're going to go and, and win the World Series. And then there's a tennis AU that I love called A Study in Winning, which is Sherlock is kind of this young British slash French um, tennis star. John is a tennis star who's kind of getting ready to retire after an inner um an injury and they end up meeting up at wimbledon and battling it out to win wimbledon of course falling in love and having sex along the way um so there's these fascinating plays where you know the the writers take these fictional characters and they're like what if i changed everything about the world again like is it still sherlock fan fiction how does it become how does it remain in world when i change everything about it except for these two characters and it really makes you think about also like, well, what is character? If Sherlock Holmes isn't a detective anymore, how is he still Sherlock Holmes? And this is where they pick up on all of those tropes um, and characteristics and world building, and they transport them actually into other worlds. So you may still have a 221B Baker Street. So you may still have the flat. Sherlock still has his deductive abilities, but he applies them to different fields, like being a magician or being an amazing baseball pitcher or being able to analyze somebody's kind of tennis game and to be able to figure out the stats and how to beat them. Um, So they take all of those same elements, the catchphrases, their physical characteristics. A lot of the fan fiction also pays a lot of attention to Benedict Cumberbatch and Martin Freeman's physical appearances and mannerisms, as well as ways to kind of focus on characterization. And they pluck them and put them into all of these different worlds. And Kind of really on this, like simultaneously, they're challenging the reader's understanding and perception of like, well, what really is Sherlock fan fiction and the Sherlockian world? At the same time, they are showing you in all these ways how they're reinforcing these are the elements that make this identifiable. And I found that really interesting. Well, first, I have to say the baseball Sherlock fanfic. That sounds like absolutely. I was like, this is wonderful. There's a scene that you talk about because it like it seems like John's the catcher. Mm-hmm. And, and <laughs> Which is just the- talk about sexual euphemisms right there. Right? right. All of this. And there's a scene that you reference about um, Sherlock licking his lips or something like, you know, and I was like, this is great. Uh, but that idea it, that throughout this, you talk about the use of both, um, both in in sort of the actors and thinking about the actors and thinking about the actors like physical characteristics like a lot is talked about about Benedict Cumberbatch's brooding eyes or Mm -hmm. his hands and that kind of thing and so how they become really part of who Sherlock Holmes is or who John Watson is within these fan fiction pieces. So can you talk a little bit about that too? Yeah, their physical bodies become, and the TV show actually does this as well, that it uses the camera quite a bit to actually fetishize pieces of their physical um, attributes and their actual physical bodies. So there are lots of camera shots of Sherlock's hands, whether on his violin or doing experiments. There's close-ups of his eyes, of course, you know, because he's seeing, he's supposed to be deducing, ruffling his fluffy, beautiful, dark brown, curly hair. Um, John Watson, actually, interestingly, like fans talk, comment, he licks his lips all the time when he's talking to Sherlock. Um, and they have like deep, intense kind of gazes. He has a, a kind of muscle tick where he when he has problems kind of controlling his anger, he's a real anger issues. He's clenches his left hand quite a bit. Of course, he's got his limp, which he has in the first episode. All those things get referenced over and over and over again. So it is a really interesting kind of fascinating way to not, it kind of pieces the 
characters into these different body parts um, that then get kind of reproduced over and over in the fan fiction and then fetishized in the sense of that they do become kind of objects of sexual fan uh, fantasy for the fan fiction. Um, and this is one of those ways that they're able to be kind of consistent with this world building as they go through all of these different elements of the different stories. Um, and I think it becomes, it's, you know, it's really noticeable if you go onto archive of our own or some other fan fiction and just go and read Sherlock Holmes fan fiction. It's, it's markedly different. And even the original stories, if you go back and read Conan Doyle, he actually hardly describes Sherlock Holmes physical characteristics at all. I think this is actually why it's been one of the reasons why it's been one of the most adapted fictional characters in history is because he, he barely describes him. He describes him in the first story. He said he's very tall because he's very thin. He seems taller than he actually is, which becomes a joke. And Sherlock, like everyone always says, I thought you'd be taller in person. <laughs> he says, you know, I have a good coat and a short friend. So it makes him look taller <laughs> than he actually is, which I love. Um, so he's very tall. He's kind of aesthetic looking. He's very thin. They say he has a hooked nose. He has kind of like deep set eyes. Um, he's pale because of course, you know, he's never gets out much. He's always reading books and doing research. Um, and he has, um, I think dark hair. That's like, that's it. And then they hardly ever talk about him. There's analogies of him being like a bloodhound, you know, and animalistic in some ways in his deduction and his pursuit of, um, clues in some of the stories, but he's hardly, you don't know anything about his background either. There's one line that he basically says, I'm descended from a long line of country squires. So you don't know where he came from. You don't know how he got any of this education. So if you go and read, then there is kind of Conan Doyle, kind of generic Sherlock fan fiction on archive of our own. It's markedly different than Sherlock fan fiction, which I think also really highlights the the distinctiveness of the fictional world that Moffat and Gatiss as the creators actually made, which is absolutely tied to the physical bodies of the actors who play these characters. Um, and interesting too, like, cause the Guy Ritchie movies came out at virtually the same time as this TV show. And there's hardly any fan fiction out there of that version of this. And even though I loved it, I loved Robert Downey Jr. as Sherlock Holmes and Jude Law as Watson. I thought they had a great relationship but there's hard, nowhere near the um, magnitude of stories about them and their version as there is about um, Sherlock and John. And so much of that is actually tied into the physical characteristics and the bodies of the two actors who played those characters. It's part of that fictional world. That's really interesting. Right. And, and you sort of end us or you do the last sort of fan fiction that you talk about is this real person fiction, right? So really thinking about in real life, who these two actors are and and their role. So can you talk a little bit about that? Um, because this is also a fan fiction that is a, a bit controversial in the fan fiction world. So can you talk about real person fiction and how you see that playing out in Sherlock? Sure. So real person fiction really is stories written about real people in the world. Most of the time it's celebrities. It could be athletes. So these are people who are writing fictional stories. Oftentimes it gets associated with what um, fan fiction um, followers called Mary Sue stories, which are stories where 
the writer may create an original fictional character who is kind of going to either going to be like ridiculously save the day, maybe modeled on the fantasy of the author having some kind of role in the fictional world. And so a lot of the the versions I looked at were what we call self-insert fic. So they really are kind of like you imagine yourself like me, you're, you're traveling for a conference and you're in the hotel bar and oh my gosh, Benedict Cumberbatch walks in, right? Or, you know, you end up, you know, maybe you're a reporter and you end up you know, interviewing John, um, I said, I said uh, Martin Freeman. See, I do it too. <laughs> the slippage. Um, Martin Freeman. And then you end up having most of them like some kind of sexual fantasy or relationship with him. So this is actually has historically been very controversial in fan fiction studies world because a lot of fans have written that they feel like that's a violation of the basically the personal rights and privacy of the actors who play these fictional characters. They think it's skeevy. They think you shouldn't be publishing stories where you're fantasizing about having these relationships or encounters with real people. They are real people. They have lives. They may have fan families. And this is really a violation of their personhood and of their privacy. There was a, there's a small kind of group out there. I think this is growing a little bit more that basically says, you know, stories are stories. These are all fictional, right? That you can kind of write about anyone. And no one is trying to say that this is a a, a relationship or a story about a real person. And a lot of this, um, and this is kind of like even, you know, teasing out the relationship between kind of like biology and bodies and gender and behavior and, and sexual identity that I do earlier in the queering um, Sherlock's world chapter and the one on slash is that we started to basically have to define what is a person. And so there was, I did a lot of research on theories about, you know, presentation of the everyday self like Irving Goffman um, research about what is a person versus the presentation you give the world versus your kind of, do you have an internal autonomous self? Were you born with it? Is it created? Is it the same thing that you show the world? And also looking at celebrity studies, which looks at persona, especially for, for celebrities about a cons- oftentimes a very a carefully constructed personhood version of the actor that gets presented in media, whether it's through interviews, whether it's through cultivated um, newspaper, magazine stories, whether fashion, all kinds of different elements. Social media was an interesting one too. And how those are often used to convince the audience that you are seeing the quote unquote real person, that you're having access kind of to their inner self instead of a fake persona self and being able to navigate those things through kind of different elements. And so I look at how Martin Freeman and Benedict Cumberbatch kind of have been represented in the media um, and kind of with that dichotomy of, you know, the real true self versus the persona version, and then look at the fan fiction particularly I was looking at, there's really fascinating on, this is on Tumblr fan fiction. There was a Martin Freeman sexual frustration blog and a, a Benedict Cumberbatch sexual frustration blog and all these kind of little vignettes about having these um, encounters with the actors, which I, I mentioned a little bit previously, quickly start kind of slipping into is there any difference between Benedict Cumberbatch, the actor and Sherlock, the character? And so it gets quite blurry in these. Um, And then I actually end on this absolutely fascinating, brilliant um, story that looks at 
Benedict Cumberbatch and Sherlock Holmes actually swapping worlds. They end up having an accident. They end up in this liminal space and kind of see each other. And then they get transported into each other's bodies. So Benedict Cumberbatch ends up in like the fictional Sherlock world, which he's just been television, you know, recording for television in the real world, Sherlock ends up as Benedict Cumberbatch and nothing's going right because it's like his hair's not perfect and he has a lisp and like all these things that, you know, Benedict Cumberbatch, the person really does. He's in a secret. I love this part too. He's in a secret sexual relationship with Tom Hiddleston, which nobody knows about <laughs> in the real world. Um, and so the writer has the fictional character and the quote unquote real actor have to kind of come face to face with the what is reality and what is fiction and how they navigate that. And so it's this really, and then there's this wonderful scene near the end where they're finally kind of back in the liminal space and they're getting ready to return to their own worlds. And they see kind of this constellation. They're kind of in this bizarre, like white, neutral white space, but they see this constellation. It's like of stars glowing, glowing. And, and they say, like, every one of those stars is another pairing, a Sherlock and John pairing, a Sherlock and John pairing in this world. Sherlock and John is Viking, Sherlock and John here. And that it's this wonderful visual image, I think, of what the what f- fan fiction and, and adaptation and appropriation does is that, like, there are literally, you know, an infinite number of combinations of these two characters um, working together in the universe. And how can you say which one is real? And which one is fake? It, it was really interesting because I really liked that story and thinking about that move. And I'm a big fan of Supernatural. Mm. And there's a Supernatural episode where that happens, right? Ah. Where Sam and Dean Winchester, as the characters, get sort of tossed into the real life of Jensen Eccles and Jared Padalecki. And they're like, who are these guys? We're real. Who are these actors playing us, Right. Um, and so it reminds me, I needed you as an editor because this, this person, cause I, don't, I haven't watched all 13 seasons of, of Supernatural. So I didn't know. And this person probably totally adapted that and, and used that as a premise for this story. And I didn't and know. They might've, and it depends on the time, but it made me think of that too. And there's gotta be mm. other episodes and things oh, like yeah. that. But the way those two actors took that on, um, uh, mm-hmm. and reading this, I'm like, I could even see Benedict Cumberbatch doing that similar kind of thing. Right. Like, what are you talking about? I'm real, you know, I'm Sherlock. I'm real. Who is this actor trying to play? Like he has that sort of personality or he, he projects that persona that makes me think like this, this completely makes sense. Right. And one of my favorite scenes that I, that the author had um, Sherlock as Benedict do was like, Basically, he was like, you're, <laughs> he was told by Benedict Cumberbatch in the liminal space, you're a fictional character. Go. So he goes on the internet and he's like, oh my God, I'm a fictional character. And, you know, like then he, then he discovers fan fiction. So he starts reading fan fiction. He's watching fan vids on YouTube. Um, and he's learning, of course, about this TV show that's being made, which he's like, oh my gosh, this is, this is just like my life. Um, except he keeps saying they keep getting things wrong, which I love too. Like, no. John's not like that, you know, like he's really bothered by Martin Freeman not being John, you know, in, in the real world. So I just, so, I mean, it's just these wonderful um, ways that I think that fan fiction allows for this super smart play and questioning of all these kinds of constructs, you know, whether it's 
gender identity or a physical body or biological sex or reality and fiction and what was the original, you know, is is Sherlock in that last story the original or was the Conan Doyle story or the TV show? I mean, it just by its very nature, it's it it keeps calling into question all of those things I think that and many other avenues we take for granted. Right. In, so you mentioned, we've been talking for a while, but you mentioned early on that you were thinking of all the things you sort of left out or forgot. Yeah. yeah. So do you, mm-hmm. I, I don't know if you want to talk a little bit about, are there things that you wish or um, what you hope to sort of talk about or look at or wish you would have? Right. Um, so the the one I got from the most people, you know, was Omegaverse fan fiction, which is one of kind of the most original versions. So Omegaverse, which is and also very popular in the Sherlockian world in particular. So Omegaverse, people don't believe me when I explain this. Also, we could, yeah, I was going to say male pregnancy. We can talk about that one in a minute. But Omegaverse fan fiction basically takes the behavioral and kind of sexual mating characteristics of wolves um, and applies them to human beings. So you have three different kinds of distinctions, uh, which is kind of, it's like adding additional genders. Sometimes it's gender identity. Sometimes it's a sexual identity. So there are alphas who, of course, who are aggressive, who are powerful. They often are more sexually endowed. They are natural leaders. Um, It's so interesting. It's the opposite of gender in some sense of of gender swap fan fiction, because it in some sense, it totally reinforces our stereotypes about like masculine and feminine. But then it puts them on differently sexed bodies, which is fun. And then you have omegas who are often rare and super prized and they may be submissive. They may be expected to be kind of kept. Um, um, they are highly fertile. Uh, um, they also, and I can, we don't need to go into the sexual, there's also physical, physiological characteristics that go with that. Um, so male omegas, for example, can be impregnated. Um, female alphas, for example, can impregnate, um, omegas. And there are, so there are behavioral aspects to it. There's kind of, there's pack stuff, there's scenting involved. I mean, so in many ways, there's kind of a lot of, uh, animalistic elements, but there's, so there's a lot of fascinating stuff about gender and sexual behavior and anatomy and and connections to um, physiology, I think. And it's, it's really interesting that it's really popular in Sherlock fan fiction, I think, a lot more maybe than we've seen in other kind of fictional worlds. I didn't talk about it, but it would have been like if I could have done a second chapter probably on in between, in some sense, in between kind of gender and sexuality, I think Omegaverse would have been one. Um, there really are ones about, I mean, crazy stuff about like tentacle fan fiction where like somebody is an alien and they have tentacles and you can have sex in lots of interesting and creative fun ways. Um, I don't know if I would have done an entire chapter on that. Um, the, so the one, also the thing kind of politically, I wish that I had done, I have put a footnote in it cause this is actually what I'm, I'm working on in a larger project now is looking at, um, constructs and assumption about race Mm. in Sherlock's world. There are a very, I was supposed to give a talk this last month at the North American fan studies network conference on um, black Sherlock fan fiction um, that I ended up having to step out of the conference because I had a work conflict and I couldn't get there. Um, So I'm interested in, I mean, because people have been, there's been a great, a few great articles, particularly about the second, the first season second episode, episode on the blind banker about um, kind of pervasive and 
um, cr critical attitudes towards representations of Asians in that show and, and the stereotypes. Also critiques of the show of how white their version of London is like, where are the people of color? Where are all the um, international um, people, whether from Europe or all over the world that are members of the London community and you don't see them um, very often when you do have a character like Sally Donovan, who's a um, black female detective in the first couple of episodes in season. I mean, she is somebody who, who is comp always um, disparaged and, um, and attacked by Sherlock, and therefore the audience often gets is placed in a position of critiquing her and and not liking her because she doesn't like Sherlock and she causes lots of problems for him. So there's there's a lot of stuff in the show that's quite problematic about um, racial identity and racial representation. And what's fascinating is so when you go and look at the fan fiction, like of all the different variations of imaginings of what people have thought about, very very few fans have actually imagined what would it be like if. Sherlock and John or John were black or Asian or Latina or from another country. Interesting. So there's like eight of them. I mean, eight out of like hundreds of thousands of Sherlock fan fictions, there's maybe eight and they're not all actually Sherlock. So um, the project I'm working on now actually is, is not just with fan fiction. I'm looking at um, black Sherlock Holmes adaptations starting in 1902 in all different kinds of media. So I'm, I'm really interested in what I'm surprised is that like, there actually are a lot um, in all different kinds of media, whether it's from film and it's in jazz and it's in television and it's in advertising and um, all throughout the century. So I'm, I'm curious about what that tells us about the character um, as well as identity. That's really interesting. Fascinating. So like I said, we've talked for a while. And so you sort of told us what you're working on next. I don't know if there's anything else that um, you're working on or want to share. Sure. So um, I've got a couple of um, pieces that are coming out. So I've got a, a really interesting piece coming out in the Journal of Popular Culture in January on this fascinating children's book that came out in the 50s in England, which is based on um, a toy called the Gollywog, which comes from actually North America, 19th century North America. Um, it's kind of um, a minstrel doll, so white children may, or even sometimes black children would have this little doll who had um, exaggerated kind of black racial characteristics. It gets picked up in a children's story in the 1890s and then becomes a mascot. The Gollywog becomes a mascot of this British, um, basically a preserves company. They're famous for their orange marmalade called, um, also I'm going to forget the name of it. So you're going to have to cut this part out. Robertson's. I think it's Robertson's. Um, and so the Gollywog becomes their mascot all the way up until the early 2000s. And in the 1950s, they did a promotional item. So you would save your lids for um, their jam, and then you can send them in, and you could get Gollywog memorabilia. And so one of the things they did in the 50s was a children's book called Detective Gollywog, which has this blackface minstrel character dressed up like Sherlock Holmes. And then it has all these detective clues, like how to spy on your parents um, or like, you know, how to detect crimes, how to help white kids cross the road. I mean, it's just this fascinating little eight page booklet. So I've got an article coming out with that. Um, I just actually got an article exception accepted for the adaptation journal on the 1918 black um, 
It's called A Black Sherlock Holmes. It's a silent film that came out in the United States, which is really interesting. So I think that'll be out next year. And then I actually have a another article that should be coming out in the collection. There's a, a wonderful group of adaptation scholars who put a collection together on transmedia practices that kind of like my article that I did on titbits and early Sherlock Holmes fandom really is historicizing kind of transmedia um, franchises and behaviors. And so they're looking at like 1800 to 1914. And so I've got a, another article or chat book chapter coming out there on um, transmedia fan, fan practices, basically in the, in the late 19th century, looking at Sherlock Holmes and then going into tapping into some of Matthew Freeman's work on um, Wizard of Oz and Tarzan. So I've got those things coming up, which is lots of fun. And somehow, uh, you know, this going back to that black Sherlock fan fiction, that's going to be part of this big piece too. Fabulous. Well, it's been really wonderful talking with you about this. Thank you. You too. I really appreciate it. <laughs> um, so again, this was Anne McClellan, who is the author of Sherlock's World Fan Fiction and Reimagining of BBC Sherlock. And thanks so much for talking with me on New Books Network, New Books and Popular Culture. Thank you so much, Rebecca. I appreciate it. 